0: Amen. What a beautiful morning to worship. got up this morning and heard the birds and heard the buzz in my neighborhood. All my neighbors were worshiping the concert of lawnmowers, um, worshiping at their their altar this morning. Um, But we are here to worship the risen Lord. Uh, so, if you're here for the first time, we're glad you're here, and uh, many people attend church on Easter Sunday because it's a tradition. We've, we've, we've always done it, and we're glad you're here, um, and uh, if the last time you were here was last Easter, uh, I hope... That will not be the case again. I hope that uh, what we say this morning, what you learned this morning will be um, applied to your hearts and minds and the Lord will use it for his glory. Uh, And so the tradition that we celebrate on Easter Sunday, on Resurrection Sunday, is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, fully God, fully man, died on the cross and three days rose again as the Lord of glory. But we as a church, we celebrate that every time we gather. So today is going to be no different. Um, but today we're not going to tackle whether the resurrection is true um, or we, we just assume that it is. We know that it is because the scriptures tell us. If you have questions about whether the resurrection is true, you can look at 1 Corinthians 15. You can look at the end of any of the gospels. That's not going to be our aim this morning. Um, but we're going to handle a more important, more pressing matter. So what? In other words, why does it matter? Why does it matter if the resurrection is true? Why does it matter that Jesus was God and man? Why does it matter that he actually died and he actually rose again? What does any of that have to do with my life here and now? What does any of that have to do with eternity? Because there's one reality that unites us all. When you wake up in the morning and look in the mirror You're looking at a sinner. You're looking at a corrupted person who's going to die. Guaranteed. You will die. There is no way around it. And when you die, you will go before a holy God and righteous king. Your sin, his righteousness, and what will you say? That is why this matters. And so in that vein, I want you to think today How do you view your own condition? How do you view your own condition? And what is your hope in that condition? And then what, if anything, does the death and resurrection of Christ have to do with that? All right, so we're going to continue in Proverbs. If you're here for the first time, welcome. Um, But most of us are here each week and we're going through the book of Proverbs. And so why are we staying in the book of Proverbs? It's Easter. Why don't we go to the Gospels? Because if we can't preach the resurrection from Proverbs, we shouldn't be preaching it at all. So we're going to preach the resurrection from Proverbs. Um, And so we're going to look at three essential Proverbs for our condition this morning. Proverbs 20 verse 9, Proverbs 16 6 and 28 13. Uh, So I'm going to read those three uh, then we will pray, and then we will work through those as you can see in your outline. And I even gave you little spaces to make sure that you're paying attention so you can put the verses in. Proverbs 20, verse 9. Who can say, I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. Proverbs sixteen, six. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. And finally, 28.13. Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning. Is a great and awesome God. Blessed be your name in all the earth. We stand with your saints throughout history and your saints all over the globe. This morning and throughout the day, we pray that Jesus Christ and Him crucified will be proclaimed and sung and exalted. Amen. That your people would find encouragement and comfort at the foot of the cross, that we stand in his righteousness because he took our sin, that we might have eternal life. This is truly good news. We are the people of good news. May we always have the good news on our lips. And when the world speaks of sin and speaks to the problem of sin, may we have an answer. And that answer is a person, and that person has a name. He is Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it is in his name, by the power of his Spirit, that I pray. Amen. So we're going to begin in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 9. So one of the, if not the most profound questions in the entire book. This question is for all sinners alike, and I want you to think about it. I want to read it slowly, and I want you to consider it. Who can say, I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. Who can say? Any bold hands want to raise to say, I can? No, you can't. So let's give some context here most commentators think that this is a, um, a uh, complete unit in chapter 20 beginning in verse two really goes through verse 9. But remember last week we looked at the king so uh, in on Palm Sunday the day when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on on the donkey uh, and in his in his regal procession declaring that I am the king that the prophet spoke about And we showed all the ways that the ideal king in Proverbs points us to Jesus Christ. Uh, There's one of the verses we looked at in here, but notice this again is the ideal king. And so if we see this as a unit beginning with the king and ending with the king, and then all of the king's subjects in the middle, it kind of gives you a picture of mankind before the ideal king or the righteous king. Let's begin in verse 2. The terror of a king is like the growling of a lion. Whoever provokes him to anger forfeits his life. A righteous king is to be feared because he hates wickedness. And if you are wicked, you should be terrified. So what marks the king's subject? Verse 3. It's an honor for a man to keep aloof or away from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. That's certainly true of subjects in a kingdom. The sluggard does not plow in autumn. He will seek it harvest and have nothing. Also true of some of the king's subjects. The purpose in a man's heart is deep like water, but a man of understanding will, will draw it out. There's wisdom in this kingdom. Uh, and I think that the repetition of man here helps us. Uh, many in this whole section, many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find it. Pay attention to this one. This is a very similar question answering or addressing a very similar problem. Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love. There is no shortage of people who will tell you how dependable they are, how reliable they are, how good they are. But in reality, a faithful man who can find The righteous who walks in integrity, blessed are his children after him. Humanity is a mixed bag. There's the righteous and the sluggard. And there's a king who sits on the throne of judgment, who winnows all evil with his eyes. This king whose wrath is to be feared, who hates evil, a righteous king wants all wickedness removed from his kingdom. This ideal king wants no one who is evil in his sight, wants nothing that is corrupted on his soil. And before that king, verse 9, who can say, I have made my heart pure. I am clean from my sin. No one is implied because of verse 10. Unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Only the Lord is right. Only the Lord is true. Only the Lord is pure. Only the Lord is clean. Only the Lord is impartial. And so here we are. Sinful men, sinful women, thinking we're faithful, thinking we can do enough to clean and purify ourselves, but who can really say that? Who can really do that? So let's break down, let's spend our time in verse 9 as our first point here. Let's break down the two parts of this verse. First part, who can say, I have made my heart pure? Who can say that? Now, this is not a biological problem. This is not someone who needs a quadruple bypass surgery. This is someone who needs a heart transplant. Who can say, I make my heart pure? In Hebrew, the heart is the center of your being. It is the center of your identity. It is the, 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 the seat of your, of your thoughts and your, and your hopes and your ambitions and your understanding. It is who you are. Who can say I have made myself pure? This is not a biological problem. This is a problem in nature. This is a problem in your very self. We are impure, unclean, to the core of who we are. Our human nature is corrupt. This is why Israel needed circumcised hearts, not just circumcised foreskins. That is certainly not enough. But your heart, who you really are, that's the problem. So thinking about this, as I'm staring into the backyard, we live on an old orange grove. And um, the trees still bear oranges, and they are beautiful from the outside. But they haven't been maintained. They haven't been fertilized. They haven't been been pruned. They haven't been cared for. Other trees have grown around them and, and blocked out the sunlight. From the outside, they are bright, and they are orange, and they look sweet. But if you were to pull one off the tree, it's bitter. This tree, without outside help, will never be sweet again. This is a bad tree with bad fruit, although... All the external signs point to it being healthy. Anyone ever bitten into an apple that looks healthy on the outside and then you you get a bite into it and it's brown and it's mushy and it's rotten to the core? If you have not, count yourself lucky. The only thing worse worse than biting into an apple, it's nasty, it's got worms in it, it's biting into an apple and finding half a worm. Some of you will get that later. It's corrupted by its very nature. And so what tree or what apple can make itself good to eat again? What tree can make itself a different kind of tree? What bitter tree can make itself sweet? How many people are trying to do that? How many people are trying to make themselves good, worthy. How many people can perform heart surgery on themselves? This is what happens if you try to address the human condition, the condition of the human heart by human means. You might as well as soon perform heart surgery on yourself. That's the first problem, the heart. Second problem, second half of the verse here. Who can say, I am clean from my sin? Just like the heart pumps blood through the veins, the heart of a man, the condition of who he is, pumps through the rest of his body. All of our intentions flow from the heart. Therefore, if the heart is corrupt, the actions will be corrupt. Our nature drives our actions. So we've got a nature problem and we've got a sin problem. Unclean hearts make unclean people. We sin because we are sinners. It is not the reverse. Our sins don't make us sinners. We were born that way. So we've got a heart problem and an action problem. Let's think about it this way. Some of you were old enough to remember when... Gym socks only came in white. Uh, you didn't get cool colors in, anymore. They only came in white. There is nothing better. When you were a kid and you get a new pair of white, clean gym socks right out of the bag. There is nothing like putting a clean pair of socks on your feet. But how some of the ladies are, are, are nodding their heads. Guys, you ever, play, play football. You do not want to wear old socks. You get a new pair of socks, you are happy. But how long are they clean? How long do white socks stay white? How long after just one day in walking around in them? One day in playing with them, one day in the dust and the dirt being kicked up, what do the bottoms look like? And whenever we'll try to make them white again, it's not happening. It is not possible. There is no one in this room who has a pair of white socks in their drawer that's still white after being worn more than one time. No one. This is our sin. You walk one day in sin. You will never be clean again. That whiteness, that, that, that pure um, cotton that comes out of the bag will never look the same again. But our sin's worse. Imagine walking around all day, every day with no shoes on in those white socks. How polluted would you be? How far-fetched would it be to think that you could make yourself clean from walking around from those socks? You might as well just throw them away. And then standing before a perfectly pure and clean God who can accept nothing less with your dirty, ratty socks. But not just your socks, this... That encompasses your entire self. This is the second problem. We've got a heart problem, and we've got an action problem. Our hearts are corrupted, and therefore, everything about us is corrupted. The socks are just a small example, but imagine that is our entire being. Head to toe, and we can never make ourselves clean So when people think about the resurrection, they think that we're forgiven of our sins. And of course, we've got a sin problem. And while true, it's only half the story. Our greater problem is our sinful nature because it produces more sin. That's why both of them are addressed in this verse. The heart and the action. Humanity has a sin anatomy problem and a sin activity problem. Our composition as human beings is corrupted. Our sin anatomy. Therefore, our actions are corrupted. Our sin activity. And So here's the problem of sin. Here's the question for all sinners. You've got a corrupted nature. You've got corrupted actions. What are you going to do? And because this is man's problem, because this is our problem as humanity, man must answer for it. It wouldn't be right or just of, of, of God to take out the, the, the punishment on someone who doesn't fit the crime. What is humanity's hope then? Is anyone able to resolve it? Here we come to our second point, verse 6 of chapter 16. Where does Proverbs give us the answer? Proverbs 16, 6, By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Uh, Let's look in detail here. First word, by. This is how it comes to pass. This is the means by which iniquity or sin is atoned for. If you're not familiar with the word atone, it means covering. Covering. From the very beginning, when there is sin, it is an affront and an offense to God, and it must be covered. This is the point of the sacrificial system, and this is what they knew instinctively, that my sin deserves death. And so in order to cover for my sin, atone for my sin, something else has to die, a suitable sacrifice so they would kill animals and their blood would cover the altar as an offering to God and so their sin would be covered by steadfast love and faithfulness iniquity is atoned for. How does this atoning come to pass? By steadfast love and faithfulness. If you were paying attention last week, you remember our Hebrew word from last week. Chesed. Covenant loyalty, steadfast love, The only one who ever perfectly or rightly possesses it is God himself. By chesed, in the Hebrew here, is iniquity atoned for. Think about that. These are people who lived in the sacrificial system, who once a year, the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, would would, would slaughter a, a, a blameless lamb be reminded of their sins, and they would give uh, sin offerings throughout the year, but only by steadfast love and faithfulness can sin be atoned for. We already saw in verse 6 of chapter 20, no man is faithful. No matter how hard we try, no matter how much we toot our own horn, no one is faithful. So if this is what is truly required for atoning of sin, steadfast love and faithfulness, what hope does humanity have? And the parallel here, by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. In Hebrew parallelism, these by's, the first half and the second half of the verse, connect them. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, i.e., equal to the fear of the Lord turns away evil. How many of us could fear the Lord enough to turn from evil in our own strength? None of us. How How many of us are steadfast enough and faithful enough to atone for our own sin none of us this is impossible unless there's one who could atonement requires chesed a character only god possesses and we know from all human history only one has been faithful only one is tempted in every way but without sin Only one man has ever kept the law perfectly. And there is only one God. And this man feared the Lord perfectly while on earth, perfectly following every word of his Father's will. So here we have the steadfast, faithful, obedient one, the only one who fits this verse. This is why Jesus must be God and man. Because the only one who fits this is the God-man. Only God has hesed. Only God is truly faithful. And he is the only man who has ever truly feared the Lord. And so this man is the only one who can stand in the place of the problem of sin. Humanity must pay for humanity's sins. And this is why we need God with us. A simple man could not possess the love and faithfulness of God. And God himself could not justly stand in the place of man. Or he would not be perfect in his justice. That's why we need the God-man, Emmanuel, God with us. The cross is where Jesus died for the atonement of sins, based on his steadfast love, based on his faithfulness. But when he rose, he rose to new life as a new Adam, becoming the solution for humanity in a new nature, fulfilling the promise of Ezekiel. You know the problem with our heart, the one that Jeremiah says is deceitful and wicked above all things, no one can trust it? The prophet Ezekiel saw a vision of a people in the future who in this covenant with this God would receive new hearts. They would have hearts of stone that they were born with that were dead and and unable to purify themselves. But in this covenant, their hearts would be purified because they're given new hearts, because they're given the spirit of the living God to bring life into them. Our first Adam fell horribly short. And he died. That is the human condition. That is the human problem. That's why we need a second Adam. That's why we need an Adam who can purify hearts and cleanse sins and bring people to new life. This is the ultimate Cinderella scenario. This is the only person who these shoes fit. It cannot fit anyone else. It cannot be anyone else. And in order to be reconciled to God, we sinners must be righteous. We are completely lacking. Even if our sins are taken away, we are still deficient. Because he's a righteous king. We have nothing to offer him. That is why our king offers us his righteousness. Look at 1 Peter 3 verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring us to God. This exchange of his righteousness, suffered for sins, taking them upon himself that we might have his righteousness, that we may no longer be unrighteousness, that is how we are reconciled to God. That is how the problem of sin is solved, because he put to death the flesh. But he was made alive in the spirit. We're going to spend a few moments in the New Testament here. I want to show you why Jesus spoke the way he did about his death, burial, and resurrection. So uh, if you're in the New Testament or you're not, uh, go to Mark. Second book in the New Testament if you're here for the first time. Go past Matthew, go to Mark. Three times in Mark. We spent uh, a year and a half going through Mark. Three times in Mark, he, he prophesies that he's going to die and rise again. Why? Why does he keep saying this? Why does he keep, why does he keep promising this to the, to the disciples? And why do they argue against it? Uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. He must suffer. Notice, Jesus doesn't say this is plan B in case... Nothing else works out. You know, Maybe we can find another way to, uh, to make a, a peace agreement with the, with the Sadducees in Rome. He must suffer. This must happen. And be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. Be killed and after three days rise again. This must happen. This is humanity's only hope. That God, man, must suffer or we will all suffer. But Peter not understanding and us not understanding... How often have I heard people say, well, that's not fair. It isn't. You don't want fair. Fair is you die with, with your sin. But this is what Peter's thinking. In, in our flesh, we, re, we respond. Jesus tells them plainly, but Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I, I love preaching through this when we were going through Mark. Imagine Peter, the just courage and stupidity of Peter to pull Jesus aside to rebuke him. Don't do that. Don't tell Jesus what he should do in your life. Just a little pastoral side note there. By turning and, seeing, um, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Peter rebukes him privately. Jesus rebukes him publicly. And he said, get behind me, Satan. Whoa. This is his most devoted disciple. Why is he calling him Satan? Because you know the only one who benefits... If Jesus does not go to the cross and rise again, Satan. This is exactly what his enemy would want. For him to die and be forgotten. And all of us to die with him. For the second Adam to be just like the first. To keep Jesus from the cross. To keep Jesus from the grave. Is from Satan. And Jesus rebukes him harshly. Why? Because he is setting his mind not on the things of God, but on the things of man. Man cares about self-preservation. Man is selfish. Don't leave me, Jesus. Keep things just the way we are. Jesus says, no, it's better because you're dead if I don't die in your place. You will live in hell for eternity. If I do not rise from the grave and you live in me, you are dead in your sins unless I take them. You have no righteousness to stand on unless I give them to you. That's why I must suffer. That's why the God man had to suffer. Let's go back to Luke that we read earlier. So this is before the resurrection. Jesus even reminds them after the resurrection, Luke 24. Here's the solution, and he lays it out plainly for them. They didn't understand before, but now he tells them, he fills in one more piece of the puzzle. Uh, We we began that, uh, verse 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law, the prophets, and the psalms must be fulfilled. Proverbs, where we're reading right now, that's considered the psalms. The Hebrew Tanakh has three distinctions. The law, the prophets, and the writings. The Proverbs, it's one of the writings, everything written about Christ must be fulfilled. Everything must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Oh, how amazing that would be. And also to them, he said, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer. Read here, will suffer. Everything must be fulfilled, even down to his suffering. It must happen. And on the third day, rise from the dead. And that Also, here's what must happen, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. This is the purpose. Why? Because if Jesus died and rose from the grave, that means we can be forgiven. That means the good news can go to all the nations. That means this is good news for all people. As far as the curse is found, from one side of the globe to the other, Throughout all of history, this is humanity's answer. This is the good news that there is forgiveness of sins for those who repent. Praise God. This is why he had to die. But not just that he died, but that he rose again. What is the significance of him rising again? Let's go to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, the entire purpose of the book is how Jesus is better than everything else. Cliff notes. Jesus is better than everything that came before. Full stop. But obviously there's more to discuss. Hebrews uh, deals with many themes. But let's go to chapter 8. I wish I could spend more time here, but I'm going to do this quickly. The writer here spends a lot of time in the uh, priesthood, in the sacrifices. But verse 1 of chapter 8 is kind of a summary. Now the point of what we are saying is this. It all comes down to this. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. All right. Let's piece these things together. High priest. Again, Proverbs is written to Israel. They grew up in a sacrificial system. Once a year, the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies. Only one person can offer that sacrifice for the atonement of the entire nation. Only once, only once a year. This high priest does it once forever for his entire kingdom for all of their righteousness, for the forgiveness of all of their sins. And it's not just any ordinary high priest. He's not just walking into a a, a 10 by 10 room. He is a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. That's kingly language. This priest is also a king. And when he walks into these holy places, he is seated at the true tent The tabernacle that the Israelites went to to worship on earth, the temple that they went to worship on earth, that was made with human hands. But this true tent, God made not man. This high priest, this king, goes before God. When he rises, he takes the sacrifice of himself and lays it and says, it is finished because I did it. And I am seated because my work is done and now my reign begins. This is why he rose again to seal that the dead stuff remains dead, but the things that are alive remain alive. As long as he is king, if you are in him, you are alive. As long as he is high priest, your sins are covered. You know how long that is? He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That means forever. This is where a risen king is now. Let's skip forward to chapter 9, verse 24. For Christ, uh, still in Hebrew, sorry. Uh, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, we cover this, which are copies of the true things, the heavenly things, but into heaven itself, not to appear in the, uh, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He died, he rose again in our place. We have wicked hearts. We are unclean creatures. We can't stand before God. But he stands in our place. Not like other high priests, verse 25, to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters a holy place every year with blood not his own. Just like the high priest is no longer needed to apply the blood of animals for sins, neither do you need to continue to atone for your sins. If you are in Christ, stop trying to pay what Christ has already been paid, has already paid. Once for all, that means you too. That means you can rest in his sacrifice. You can rest in his finished work. For then... He would, at verse 26, he'd have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, because we keep sinning. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Going back to our verse in Proverbs 16. How is sin atoned for? Steadfast love, faithfulness, himself. He is the only acceptable sacrifice. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Think about that. If you are in Christ this morning, we can eagerly wait. We don't have to fear his coming. We're excited for it. Because he died once to sin. He died so that we may never die of our sin and so that's why we eagerly await that's why we're excited about the resurrection because the empty grave reminds us that he is alive and he is coming again he is seated on the right hand of the father in glory and no one can take that away from him or you so in our final point what is the disposition of sinners how can we who are the many? How can we tell those who are eagerly awaiting him? Here's our disposition. Here is the proving point, if you will. 28, 13, Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Let's spend a few moments here. Who who are the many? Who are those who eagerly wait him? Those who know that they are sinners and know that they need mercy. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. How many people foolishly think they can conceal their sin? How many people foolishly and continually think that they can hide from God? As if you're a little two-year-old who thinks, because mommy can't see me, or I can't see mommy, she can't see me. He is the living God. But yet, how often do we try to conceal our sin? How often do we try to hold them tightly because we don't want to give them up? How often do we think we think we can keep pushing them under a rug and push them in a dark closet and think that they will never come back out? Our sins are not inanimate objects. It's like, it's like rotten fish. You ever try to ignore rotten fish? You might be able to do it for a couple hours, but it is going to stink. And it is going to get worse, and it is going to get putrid. You can't conceal it because it will find you out, and it will clear the house out. Bad news, that's you. Bad news, we're sinners. But good news, Jesus died for sinners. Amen to that. He cleanses those he died for. And those he died for, they will repent. But, here's the other half of this. Notice, it doesn't say those who give enough sacrifices, those who do enough good things, those those who check enough boxes. But he who confesses and forsakes his sin will obtain mercy. What is required? Know that you're a sinner. Know that you need mercy. Confess your sin and repent. And believe that God is merciful to forgive. John, the apostle, describes this in his, in his first letter. And as we wind down, I want you to think about this. Uh, wind down before application. We're not really winding down yet. Um, 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. It'll be up on the screen. Here is the disposition of the truly repentant. Here are those who are crying out and trusting for mercy. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's the answer. That's the solution. We don't conceal our sin in the darkness. We don't hold on to it. We know that we're sinners, and we walk in the light because our sin has been forgiven and our fellowship with one another. This gathering, we are here this morning because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Because when he saves each of us and brings us together, we now have fellowship because you're covered with his blood like I'm covered with his blood. And you see another saint, you see another saint who has broken over their sin and is grateful for his righteousness, and you're like, I'm home. Jesus has brought us together and made us home. But, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. This is like the person who conceals their sin. Oh, it doesn't exist. But if we confess our sins, here's that idea again. He is faithful. He's the steadfast one. He's the faithful one. And just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice, that's exactly what we read in Proverbs. Proverbs. We've got a heart problem. It needs to be purified. We've got a sin problem. It needs to be cleansed. We need a faithful one. We need a steadfast one. It's Jesus. It's the Messiah who's able to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and give us his righteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Don't be foolish. I want to just clarify here cuz sometimes people read this and think, "Oh man. Because I sin, because I have not forsaken every sin, does that mean I'm really not saved?" You don't have to be sinless. You can't be. But if the Holy Spirit is working, you will be convicted. You will confess. You will hate your own sin. You will try to suppress it like, like a, a, a beach ball where you can try to push it down as, as much as you want under the water, but it will, you, you can't do it for too long. You don't have enough strength. And that conviction, the Holy Spirit working in you, is crying out to a living God for mercy and saying, Christ is faithful even when I'm not. I rest on his faithfulness. So, do you know your own condition? Most of us here, I think it's safe to say none of us here play in the NFL. Shocker. That doesn't shock anyone. We understand the reality that I'm not good enough to play in the NFL, or the NBA, or Major League, or whatever other secondary sport you watch. Um, We're not good enough. I mean, in... That particular limitation, it's obvious, it's clear to us, but how many people are not as aware of their human condition, of their human limitations? How many people think, like, you don't think that you're good enough to play with LeBron James, you're not, but you think you're good enough to stand before a living God in your own righteousness? That's a little brave. Just like we can't will ourselves in the NFL, we can't will ourselves out of sin. We're not good enough, but there's hope. And hope is not push-ups, it's a person. The God-man, the faithful one who is faithful to forgive, the one whose steadfast love you rest on. See, the resurrection is not just an amazing miracle, it is, but it is life-changing, history-altering good news. It changes the whole dynamic of God before man because now there is a sacrifice. Now there is reconciliation. And now there's an answer to the entire human condition. How? Through the steadfast love of our Savior to all who repent and believe. Christ accomplished all this so that we could even begin to fear the Lord as he did. That's going to be our topic for next week, the fear of the Lord. And in that fear of the Lord that he accomplishes for us, we are right citizens of his kingdom. He has banished evil from his kingdom, and one day he'll banish it for good. But he begins in us. He begins in the work of the redeemed with his righteousness, he is the ideal king who will rid his kingdom of evil forever. And he, sound, he surrounds himself with righteous people. That is why we must have his righteousness. Because we don't have any on, his own, on our own. And he wants us to be like him. For his glory. Which ends up being our good. All Christian theology can be seen through how we see the cross. And I just scratched the surface this morning. I want to spend a couple moments in application. I want to begin with one of the most uh, beautiful descriptions of this written throughout history. um, The Heidelberg Catechism, question number one. I want you to notice the detail here. If you are here this morning and you are in Christ, if you are here and you see the open grave and you celebrate because you know that your sin died with him, and that you have risen to new life in in him, this is your comfort. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own. Thank God for that. But I belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. All of me. He didn't leave anything behind. No sin unaccounted for. He has fully... Paid for all my sins with his precious blood. And he has set me free from all the power of the devil. You're not just saved once and left there. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly father not a hair can fall from my head. Is that not a comfort? God knew he was going to do this. And I'm fine with it. Because Not even one gray hair sprouts out without the father knowing. Is that not a comfort? Do you believe that? Do you rest in that? It's easy to blame God. It's easy to complain. But you you know how good he is and how merciful he is. That all things must work together for my salvation. Christ must die. He must rise again. All the scriptures must be fulfilled so that he would save a people for himself. That the king would have subjects. That the king would have a kingdom. Therefore, the the answer of this question continues. By his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Amen. The resurrection of Christ gives the Christian the greatest hope ever. There is no greater hope. There is no other hope. So if you're here this morning, and you don't know him, there is a righteous king. He's righteous. He hates evil. It is an abomination to him. And he must rid every bit of it from his kingdom. And you can't save yourself from his wrath. You need need him to save you. Confess your sin. Forsake it. Leave it behind. And cry out to him in belief. However, if you are here this morning, And you have thrown yourself upon the mercy of the living God. If you have stood before the throne of your king and he has saved you, take comfort. Collective deep breath here. Take comfort in his work. He is alive. He has finished it. You can have complete confidence in his chesed. In his faithfulness, he will not change. Praise God, it is not my faithfulness and your faithfulness that requires our forgiveness. So in these last couple moments, I want to take a step further. I'm talking to Christians here. If you are here and you do not know the Lord, this is a family conversation, but I want you to listen closely. Many of you, and I've had conversations with many of you, You have trusted in Christ for your salvation. You have repented of your sins and you have turned to him for life. But you struggle with assurance of that salvation. You struggle with assurance of that salvation because you, while knowing That his faithfulness and his steadfast love and his righteousness paid the penalty for your sins. You think that your faithfulness and your steadfast love and your righteousness will continue you on. How arrogant is that? How selfish is that? To think you can continue what Christ has started in you. Stop thinking about yourself, look to him. Rest in him, rejoice in him, find comfort in him. You're not faithful, that's the point. That's why he came. This is a brotherly scold because I love you. And because I love you, I want you to know that if he set you free, you are free. And I want you to know this fact. You are as reconciled to God today as you will be on the day when he returns in glory. Nothing else you need to do to add to that. Every time you hear Christ has risen, know that he died with your sins on him, and he rose without them. He left them in the grave, and that's where they stay. Don't be like a tree thinking it can make itself sweet again. You can't. But if he has made you sweet and good and pure, no one can undo it. Just like you can't save yourself, you can't unsave yourself. And I made up a word for this moment. (laughs) Just like you can't save yourself, you can't unsave yourself. Everybody say praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. Look at that cross on the wall. When I preach, I don't want you to see me. Don't see me. See the cross of Christ in preaching. This is why the Roman Catholic crucifix is blasphemous, because it's still got a suffering Jesus on it, because he is helpless until you do the rest. Our cross, not this one, but the one that we see as believers, it is empty. Because he's no longer on it. No more suffering is needed. He is risen. That cross reminds us that his work is finished. Our sins were nailed to it, our Messiah took them, our high priest offered them, and our king guards them. Our cross is empty. Like the grave, because our righteous King is risen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your perfect plan of redemption is incredible that you would know us before the foundation of the world, that you would know our sin, that you would know our wicked hearts, that we would know like Adam we want to conceal our sin. We want to be like God. We want to listen to the enemy. You knew that about us. You knew there was no hope. You knew we couldn't save ourselves. But because of your grace... And your steadfast love and your mercy you sent your son, that he would heal our hearts, that he would cover our sins, that he would make us new, that he would do what Adam was supposed to do, but couldn't. He stood in our place, and he still stands in our place. He died for our iniquity. He rose again for our life. He intercedes for us as high priest. He reigns over us as king. He speaks through us in his word through as, as prophet because you love us, because you are steadfast and faithful, because we need God as man to stand in our place. Lord, may we turn from our sin and rest in you, May we take comfort in Christ and his sacrifice for us. May we lay in peace at his feet as green pastures. Our shepherd leads and loves us, our shepherd feeds and nourishes us. And our shepherd will preserve us to the end because when he returns, we will rejoice, and until he returns, we will rejoice, because it is finished in him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.